Hello and welcome to Take 10, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Dr. Matthew Peter, Chief Economist at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to Take 10 for the latest on economics, markets, and all topics of interest for institutional investors. Now, today we're missing our usual host, Alison Hill, who's taking a well-earned break with her family. So, I'm swapping roles with Alison for the week. And in the hot seat, we have Ryan Gordon, QIC's Managing Director of Clients and Business Development. And Ryan's just returned from an investor roundup of South Korea and Japan. We'll quiz him a bit about what the sentiment on the ground there is in uh, our local region. So hello, Ryan, and welcome to Take 10. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Good, very good. Um, looking forward to seeing uh, what the sentiment is around the traps uh, in those countries close to us. But Ryan, look, your trip last week, I tell you what, it's pretty impressive. You know, as you know, I've been bombarded by your <laughs> meeting notes and it looks like an unbelievably packed itinerary. Well, Matthew, the, the trip was an infrastructure-related series of conferences and meetings, two conferences, one in Seoul, one in Korea, both of which had a record number of attendees, which really provided me and the other QIC people attending with me a great opportunity to connect with investors on the ground. Yeah, well, look, it's incredible, isn't it? There's a lot of investor movement and a lot of investor money there in, in our region. We often think, you know, of our region just about being entirely about China, you know, mainly because, you know, you know the trade relations we have with China and also, I suppose, the political tensions. But Korea and Japan in particular have an enormous pool of investor funds. And of course, they're looking for assets around the world, including Australia. We really need to work hard to try and make sure that we attract our fair share of money to Australia. I don't suppose you know how many trillions of dollars of funds under management you actually visited during the trip to Iran? I reckon probably in the vicinity of a couple of trillion dollars of US dollars specifically in assets. That focus we have on China often tends to colour our view over all outlook, I should say, for the region as well, Ryan. And as we know, you know, the China data has been weakening post that rebound we've witnessed earlier in the year from their COVID lockdowns. But does this pessimistic mood, I suppose, my interest is here uh, getting off, is that pessimistic mood we have towards China extend to the rest of the region? Having met so many of those top investors in the region. What's your sense of the mood on the ground there? Let's let's start with South Korea. Well, Matthew, from discussions we had with investors, Korea, like many countries, has found the post-COVID investment environment challenging. In addition to the broader macro drop that we're all familiar with, there's been some idiosyncratic issues that Korean investors have had to deal with specifically, they being namely the fall in the Korean currency and specific local credit risk repricing. Yeah, what well, that's meant, an absolute beating, hasn't it? It certainly has. And, and what that's meant from the appetite, particularly for private assets where we spent most of our conversations, that allocations effectively ceased in mid last year. There was minimal investment undertaken offshore. And when they did, they actually had to move further up the risk spectrum to really accommodate for that higher internal credit risk and short-term debt pricing, as well as you know that differential between, say, US dollars and the Korean currency. But I certainly have noticed a significant improvement in that sentiment. So Korean markets and Korean capital is starting to return and investing offshore, but it's certainly at a lower level than it was 
probably back in 2021. Yeah, so they've really taken a bit of a hit like the rest of it, sort of following off sentiment that's common. If you have, I know you go to also go to the US and, and Europe quite a bit. So it's sort of followed a similar path by the sounds of it there. Yeah, definitely. Now, Japan's interesting, though, if I take you to Japan for a second, you know, contrasting to China's, People's Bank of China, for example, is cutting rates because there's a low rate of uh, inflation reflecting the sort of drop off in China's growth. But if I, you know, go to Japan, I look at the Japanese economy has been holding up pretty well. Inflation's running about three and a half percent, which is a lot lower than us. Uh, Ryan, but high for them. And uh, the Bank of Japan, although it's keeping interest rates uh, flat at zero and interest rates have been low there at Japan, where we're, everywhere else has been raising interest rates, you know, they may have to reconsider the yield curve control there, but, you know, low interest rates there despite the slightly higher inflation. So how is that sort of scenario, you know, the recovering growth, interest rates still low, inflation not too high, how's that impacted investor sentiment there in Japan, Ryan? Yeah, Matthew, it's interesting, probably a little bit different. The sentiment was still subdued, not dissimilar to, I suppose, the, the broader thematics in Korea and other markets as well. But however, unlike the other markets, Japanese investors have generally maintained their deployment schedules. And that's probably really driven by you know, a desire to diversify their portfolios into alternatives away from Japanese government bonds. Yeah, while well, it's not much use being in Japanese government bonds <laughs> if you're earning zero, zero no. percent rate of return. No, it? that's exactly right. And you know, while they're experiencing some inflation, as you as you mentioned, Matthew, you know that that rate is is low by current global standards compared to you know what we're experiencing here in Australia, for example, and with the. Bank of Japan maintaining those official rates, it really forces, I suppose, the wheel to turn and, and look for defensive, lower risk, but but positive yielding assets within offshore markets, which they can't get from, from Japanese bonds. But it's coming from a very low base as well. What I did hear from investors is that low Japanese rate and, and with the significant increases in interest rates globally, you know, the US up around 5%, Australia 4% as well. It's actually created the, the environment for the first time in many, many years where there's a significant differential between interest rates in Japan and other major OECD countries. It's actually reduced the purchasing power of the Japanese yen for these investors. So while on a yen basis, they're deploying the same amount of capital on a US dollar basis that has been significantly reduced. So you know that the, the dollar put into the ground is is less. Yeah, that's really interesting because you think that the interest rate differentials that blows out and force them into overseas investments. But of course, if that's just being met by a weaker yen, then you know there's an offset there. And what you're saying is it's actually a net, it's it's reduced the uh, US dollar value. That's quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it's probably but, forced them a little bit, Matthew, a little bit up the risk spectrum, but not to a great deal where, where you're talking into what other investors would call riskier assets. Yeah, and you see, still see most of the flow of funds in Australia from Japan into our Aussie government bonds, you know. You're listening to QIC's Take 10 podcast, where I'm discussing the current challenges and opportunities in Asian markets, markets closest to us, with Ryan Gordon. Now, Ryan, I'd like to shift now a little bit to a discussion of where are these Asian investors 
thinking of parking their money? You know, what sectors are they looking at? What investment themes are they pursuing? You know, we hear a lot about infrastructure and issues to do with real estate globally. We know that there are uh, sort of issues with listed equity market looking looking pretty rich. You know, who, who'd want to be in bonds at the moment? Too? But anyway, what are the Asian investors telling us about in terms of their investment themes? Yeah, Matthew, as I said at the start, I had the opportunity to attend the Infrastructure Investor Conference in Seoul and Tokyo last week with Ross Israel, head of infrastructure and Evan Nance and our head of infrastructure debt who both presented the conference. So my my recent view is probably a little bit skewed by that, but but some of the key investment themes were, you know, that US and Europe have have tended to be a primary destination for real asset capital, initially in real estate, moving to private equity and infrastructure. The infrastructure demand is certainly still there, but what we're probably and what we experienced a little bit of a shift is that you know, Australia is coming onto the radar a little bit more and more as they're looking to diversify. You know, Australia is seen as a, a very safe destination for capital amongst a, a greater number of Asian investors Yeah, as part of that portfolio diversification. The other theme I, I, I thought was interesting is that you know, there's a lot of talk about ESG and particularly here in, in Australia and also in Europe as well. The conversation around ESG is not as overt in Asia. That said, the investors are really attuned to the key themes around transitioning to a zero emission world. So, you know, see a lot of leveraging of their technological capabilities and manufacturing innovations to look at ways to reduce emissions, you know, looking at vehicles and the move to hydrogen, for example, as a key focus in the region. But they're also looking to invest in energy transition and, and renewable opportunities, which is also a key area for them, as well as many other investors globally. Let's bore in on that sort of topic yep. a bit more because I think this is absolutely critical for us going forward, both in terms of our own addressing the uh, carbon emission story, but also in terms of exploiting that and attracting capital into Australia. So what is our comparative advantage? You know, you're looking at this all the time with our investment teams. What's our comparative advantage in this area? How should we be sort of like exploiting this situation? The journey to net zero through the energy transition requires an extensive investment in clean energy technologies, you know, driving a massive demand for critical mineral commodities. As a globally predominant producer and holder of these mineral reserves, as I mentioned earlier, Australia will certainly benefit as an overarching economy. I think additionally, you know, with the federal government's policy pathway towards that net zero emission here, corporate commitments also towards net emissions, and the overall desire to reduce emissions broadly across Australia requires a significant amount of investment to meet these requirements. And I think the investors that are looking at this space uh, not just here in Australia, but offshore, including you know, from Australian career. And we certainly got that feedback in the conversations we had last week. Well, Ryan, thank heavens. Uh, people like you and Ross are mining that potential for uh, overseas capital. Let's hope we can attract some capital into Australia to help us support building out that transition uh, technology and, and uh, renewables and that whole space. So listen, Thanks very much, Ryan, again, for joining us this week. And hopefully we can get you back on a more regular basis and you can give us updates on the investment sentiment, not just in our own region, but around the world. Thanks again to all our listeners for joining us and taking 10 and have a great rest of the day. 